0: So our reading this morning is from the book of Genesis, this amazing first book in the Bible, the story of creation and the first humans, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to actually read it. I want to tell you the story. So if um, you're curious, it's basically Genesis chapters 18 and 19. And the story goes like this. Abraham, kind of the patriarch of, of all three of the big world religions, Islam and Christianity and Judaism, he and his wife Sarah are in this tent In the desert. They're old in age, they're about eighty or ninety years old at this point in time. And one day he's out kind of watching the horizon and he sees these strangers coming, three strangers coming toward their tent. And he throws open the flaps of the tent and he races out to greet these strangers. He's like, Come in, come on, come on in. And he goes and he kills one of the fattest calves he has, and he prepares cheese and food and drink, and he invites his strangers these strangers to rest. And it's just over the top hospitality he welcomes these these three strangers in and they visit and then two of the strangers continue on their way and there's this scene then where abraham and one of these other strangers and at this point abraham now realizes he understands that he has entertained angels un- unaware he's entertained divine beings god if you will unaware and this remaining stranger is in fact the holy one is god however you want to understand that and they're talking outside of his tent kind of looking off down the horizon, at this city called Sodom, and God thinks for a second, and then he's, God, he, she says, "You know, Abraham, I want to tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wreck, I'm gonna rain fire and brimstone down on that city. I just thought you should know." <laughs> I mean, Abraham has some family, so there's a, there's a reason. I mean, there's a reason he's telling him this, and Abraham listens. <laughs> Abraham listens. And then, in this remarkable thing, because it doesn't happen very often in any of these biblical stories where someone talks back to God, Abraham says, Abraham says well, hold on. I realize I'm dust and ashes and pretty insignificant compared to you, but what if there's, what if there's 45, or if, what if there's 50 righteous people there? Would you destroy the whole city and those righteous people? And God's like, well, that's a good point. I wouldn't destroy the city if there were 50 righteous people. And then Abraham says, well... I realize I'm pushing my luck here. But what if there's 40 righteous people in that city, in that wicked city? Would you destroy the whole city? God, well, no, I wouldn't if there's 40 righteous. He's like, well, I know I'm being bold here, God, but what if there's just 30? And God's like, okay. And he negotiates down to, to 20, and then finally he's like, Abraham's like, I know I've pushed it a lot here. You know, I'm just your humble servant here, but what if there's just 10 Righteous people in that city. Would you you save the city if there were ten good people in that city? And God's like, Yes, I would. And then God walks off, walks away, and Abraham goes back into his tent. All right now. We got some we got some pieces here. We got this (laughs) Wizard of Oz theme and some Abraham Genesis themes here, and what's gonna happen now? I'm I'm, re- I'm remembering Ruth McKenzie's sermon from a couple of weeks ago. Some of you were here when Ruth preached on December twenty-third, and she took this parable, this really naughty kind of hard parable about these ten uh, bridesmaids and this wedding party, and how some of them were prepared and some of them weren't. And then when the party finally happened, some were in and some were out, were were out. And she just took that and just cracked it wide open and made it come alive for us in a really powerful way. In fact, it was such a powerful experience. I talked to some of the people who were in the choir who were singing music from Bach that had this parable as the the lyrics to the music, and they said, holy cow, once we heard and saw that parable in a new way, we started singing the music differently because it, it changed how we felt about that parable, and it made it come alive. So I share that because I wonder if there's something similar that might happen with this story about Abraham, this mythic story from Genesis, if we can go into that story, this story about Abraham bargaining and negotiating and putting his faith and his courage on the line with God, I wonder if there's something else there we might uncover to make that come alive even more. It's a pretty remarkable story, if you think about it, and I don't know what the equivalent is of having Abraham talk to God in this back-and-forth negotiation kind of thing. I I imagined, as I was thinking about this sermon, maybe it's like a kindergartner in school, you know, standing up to the principal, he'd be like, hey, yo, snack time's not working for me, and whatever else, and like, maybe it's something like that, those kind of power dynamics, or maybe it's a private in the army who's standing up to a a, a four-star general, that kind of disparity, or maybe you just need to imagine your head the time when you had the worst boss possible, and you finally had some courage, and it felt like you were going to die because you were standing up to that boss and saying something. I think it's on par with something like that, but then way uh, bigger. Just imagine facing, just imagine <laughs> facing the hardest thing possible, because that's what Abraham does in this story. It is this is a unique thing. You you do not have characters in the Bible talking back to God, especially this this Old Testament God, right? This is the God in those, these stories who's testy and fiery and likes to wreck things and sends floods. I mean, this is, this is the kind of God who's not got a handle on creation yet. He's a little bit, he or she is a little bit, uh, still trying to figure out what human beings are about and how to be in relationship with them. But Abraham does talk back to God. He speaks his truth. He wades out into the deep water To have this courageous conversation, speaking on behalf of this city, he wades out into that deep water knowing that it could be trouble. He could have remained silent. They could have sat there by his tent and God's like, I'm going to wreck Sodom and Abraham could have just nodded. Instead, he says, he negotiates. He says, look, he negotiates all the way down to 10. He's like, if you can find 10 righteous people, big, big fellow, just hold off on the fire and brimstone. And God says, okay, I will look and see if I can find 10 people there. I love, I love this ancient mythic story. And I think this story holds some clues that point us to the ingredients for what a courageous conversation is, what some of the elements of a courageous conversation are. But first, before I get to that, I want to tell you a little bit more about this story. Even if you've never read the Bible or have read just a little bit of the Bible, my guess is... Most of you have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You've heard about Sodom and Gomorrah, and when you hear that, you go off in this little mental trajectory, and you're like, well, that's a story about sexual depravity or homosexuality and the sin of the city, and God destroys it because God doesn't like homosexuality. Is that kind of what you think about when you hear Sodom and Gomorrah? Most of you? All right. Okay. Good.
1: (laughs) That's not what this story
0: is about. (laughs) It has been understood and interpreted that way. For a long time. It has been understood and interpreted that way for a long time. But more and more biblical scholars and Hebrew scholars, and certainly all the professors I had in seminary, suggest that that is actually not what this story is about at all. It is not about the so-called wicked sin of homosexuality. It's actually a story, a teaching story, about hospitality about caring for the stranger, caring for the weak, caring for the vulnerable. And really, it's a story about a lack of hospitality. That's the issue with the city, Sodom, how they treat the poor and the stranger. They are not hospitable. So listen to this. In the Bible, the rest of the Bible, there's over a dozen mentions of this city. And every time it's mentioned... It is mentioned in the context of their lack of hospitality, not about homosexuality. For example, the prophet Ezekiel writes that the sin, and hear this, this is this is old Testament prophetic language. This is the railing against this city. He says, Ezekiel says, the sin of Sodom is that the people there are arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. <laughs> Scathing. He goes on. He says they do not help the poor and the needy. They do not welcome the stranger. And the prophet Isaiah says the same thing in different language. He says they have too much wealth and not enough concern for the poor. So the sin of Sodom, but I'm arguing, and I think this is true based on the rest of Scripture. It says it's this lack of hospitality. It, it's failure to care for others. Are you with me on that? That kind of blows that whole story up in a really different way, doesn't it? So remember in the story I shared about Abraham and God and their negotiating, right before that, Abraham is outside of his tent ready to greet people, and he sees these three strangers, and he welcomes them in, and he kills a calf, and he shares food, and he says, rest and drink and just take a break here, and let's, let's just hang out together. And his hospitality is off the charts, Okay. So in the context of the story, we have this image of Abraham being the model of hospitality. We see that lavish example, and we realize, as readers of this story, as listeners to this story, before Abraham does, that these are actually angels, that he's entertaining angels unaware, divine beings unaware. So it's against that backdrop of Abraham's wild hospitality, welcoming these people in, that the sins of Sodom... Can be seen even more clearly, right? Here's Abraham, lavish hospitality, and down the road, this city, Sodom, where there's just a complete absence of hospitality. A little bit, bit more background about why hospitality is so critical to these religions that came out of the harsh deserts in the Middle East, and this is Christianity and Judaism and Islam. All of those religions speak about hospitality and how important it is. Parker Palmer reminds us, in the desert, people came to understand that the hospitality that was urged on them by their sacred texts was not only a God-given norm, but it was a practical necessity, because sooner or later, you would be the stranger wandering from nomadic community to other nomadic community, or watering hole to watering hole, and you would be dependent on the kindness and the hospitality of others. You would be the guest in need. So there's a practical dimension, this reciprocity dimension. Beyond that practical dimension, all of these faith traditions point to hospitality as a core element of a spiritual life. Hospitality is a core element of a spiritual life. As Parker Palmer says, the stranger is someone who may come bearing news. We need to know. News we need to know or news that will enliven and enlarge our perspective and our world. It will alert us to possibilities or developments or opportunities that we would otherwise miss. And so in this story, Abraham's hospitality reminds us that concern for the stranger is critical to the spiritual life. And in this story, Abraham is wildly spiritually alive because of his hospitality. He is spiritually alive. So again, in this contrasting perspective then with Sodom, the city down the road, when we think of Sodom then, the people there appear to be spiritually dead. And in some ways, they are as good as dead because they are not practicing hospitality. So God, in this story, wants to destroy, this is a teaching story, wants to destroy that wicked city where the people are self-focused and self-preoccupied, where they are rich and well-off and they do not care about the strangers outside their walls or inside their city. But here's what's interesting about this story. Abraham, courageous conversationalist that he is, says, hold on hold on, if there's 50 people, wait, no, 40 people, if there's 30, 10, if there's 10 good people there, that could turn the city around, that that could be enough, God, if you find 10 good people there, hold off on the destruction, 10 people could be the tipping point where something could happen, it reminds me of the call to worship that Ward shared with us this morning, It's hard to do something by yourself. But when you're in a group of people, ten people even, anything can become possible. Ten good people could have a courageous conversation about hospitality, about welcoming the strangers, and then that could become 20, and the city could be saved. That's what Abraham is arguing. It's a beautiful thought. And those of you who know this story understand that in this teaching story, God goes to that city and doesn't find ten righteous people, and the city is destroyed. Dang it, this would be such a better story if it was saved. But the loud and clear message in this teaching story, and here it is, friends, the loud and clear message is, practice hospitality lest fire and brimstone ruin your day. That's the, that's the message. I don't know how much clearer it could be. <laughs> Practice hospitality lest fire and brimstone ruin your day. I'm just saying. It's pretty clear. <laughs> so earlier, earlier in this sermon, I said that that story, the story about Abraham, holds some key teachings, some key clues as to what the ingredients of a courageous conversation might be, what those pieces are that allow us to have courageous conversations. And the first ingredient that seems very clear to me is heart, heart, H-E-A-R-T, heart. And we have talked about this before from this pulpit, not heart as muscle, but heart as spiritual center, heart as spiritual organ. As Parker Palmer reminds us, the word heart The word heart comes from the Latin core, C-O-R, and it points not merely to our emotions or a muscle, but to the core of the self. Heart points to the core of the self. That center place, that place where all of our ways of knowing converge. So the way we know things by our intuition and through our intellect and through our body and through relationships and experience, the heart is the place where all of those things converge. It's where they converge and we can integrate what we know in our minds with what we know in our bodies. It's the place where that knowledge can become more fully human. That's how Parker Palmer talks about the heart, this place where all the ways we know, that converges and is integrated, and we become more fully human when we tap into that. Parker Palmer goes on to explain that cor, C-O-R, is also the Latin root from which we get the word courage, heart and courage, same root. When all that we understand of self, that's us, and the world come together in that center place called the heart, says Parker Palmer, we are more likely to find the courage to act humanely on what we know. So the heart is the seat of all of our knowing integrated and when we have the courage to access that, we can act more humanely on what we know. So, when we look at Abraham in this mythic story, I would argue that Abraham had great heart courage. He knew his core, he knew what was true. He was able to have a hard and a heart conversation, a courageous conversation with God. He knew if there were 10 good people in the city, that would be enough. And he acted on that knowledge. He acted on the heart knowledge he had. And the lesson, I think, is when we see with the heart, when we listen with the heart, that opens up the door to these courageous conversations, to talking back to God or having a hard conversation with a partner or spouse or friend when we open and listen with the heart knowledge we have. So heart is one of those ingredients. The second ingredient is hospitality. And that is incredibly critical to courageous conversations. Think of the story with Abraham again. Because he was hospitable, tent open, come on in, here's drink and food and settle down. He had the chance to be in conversation with these strangers, with these divine beings. His hospitality created a a container for, for him to talk to God, to bargain with God. Heart and hospitality. Those are the foundations for courageous conversations. Have you had enough, Abraham? <laughs> I love sharing that story with you all because for me this was one of those experiences in seminary of wow, right? I did have that backdrop of here's what that story is about, and I don't really believe that, and da da, da. and then like actually this story is about hospitality. And I think that's important that we know and understand that richer context. The Bible is full of those kind of stories when we unpack them that change our, our perspectives. But we are going to leave Abraham for a minute here. We are going to leave Abraham, but I want to share another story with you that, about another person who, who lifts up these two ingredients, the heart and the hospitality, who had, who had the ability to act courageously on what his heart knew. And this is an important story to tell, This week, as we mark the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. This is a story about a man named John Woolman, who lived from 1720 until 1772, and this story comes from Parker Palmer's book, Healing the Heart of Democracy. John Woolman was a Quaker, and he lived in colonial New Jersey among merchants and farmers in the Society of Friends. That's what the Quakers call their congregations. And in that society, their affluence and their wealth depended on enslaving human beings, human beings who had names and families, hopes and histories. John Woolman was a tailor who didn't own slaves, and he was torn by the blatant contradiction between the Quaker belief in human equality and the fact that many Quakers were slaveholders. He refused to make that tension disappear. He didn't ignore it. He didn't use a theological sleight of hand to say, well, this is how God made the world and everything, and that's just okay. He didn't turn to violence. Instead, he insisted to his religious community that they hold that tension with honesty. Our faith says we're all equal. We're slaveholders. Hold that with honesty and then resolve it with integrity by freeing their slaves. As you probably know, Quakers make decisions by consensus instead of majority rule. And John Woolman's local society was unable to reach unity on this proposal to free their slaves. But they were persuaded of his absolute integrity in this matter, and they agreed to support him as he continued to pursue this concern. So for the next 20 years, John Woolman makes trips up and down the East Coast. He's visiting his Quaker friends. He's talking about the heartbreaking contradiction between their faith and their practice. Woolman wore undyed white clothing because dye was a product of slave labor. At meals, he would fast rather than eat food prepared or served by slaves, or he would insist on paying them for their work in attending to him. This was not always easy for John, and he paid a price for this consistent witness to his heart's truth. But he held that tension. He listened to his heart. He acted upon the knowledge he found there, and he did it with a kind of hospitality. He stayed in relationship with those who were strange to him, those who disagreed with him, those who owned slaves. After 20 years and countless conversations, the Quakers the Quakers became the first religious community in America to free their slaves some 80 years before the Civil War. John Woolman had heart courage. He turned toward the hardest thing, slavery, this institution that his faith community supported, but he knew was wrong. And through it all, through these conversations, there was this current of hospitality. It was hospitality that supported these conversations. He didn't demonize his fellow Quakers or resort to violence. He engaged with them. He welcomed them in. And to be clear, this was 20 years' worth of courageous conversations. He made the difference he did by simply walking and talking persistently and with principle. And I like to imagine, as he had these conversations, as he changed hearts and minds of those around him, it happened one person at a time until there was a group of 10, which became a group of 20, and then suddenly the entire community said, you're right. Our faith says this, we're doing this, we can't live with that contradiction any longer. And the tipping point was reached. Heart, and hospitality. We see it in Abraham, we see it in the Quaker John Woolman, and I think it can live in us as well. And as we begin to think about what it means for us to become a church that is committed to racial justice principles, I have no doubt we will be engaged in 20 plus years, more of difficult, hard, courageous conversations, walking and talking persistently and with principle. And as we move, as we move into these courageous conversations here, or with our friends, or in our small groups, let us remember hospitality, that welcoming in of others, that welcoming in of the truth, and perspective, and experience they carry. Let us remember to stay grounded, in the core of what we know, to share the truth that we hold, and to do that, not knowing what will happen exactly, but knowing when we share our truth, something will happen. Just as something happened when Abraham talked with God, just as something happened when John Woolman kept speaking to his fellow Quakers, just as something will happen when we speak courageously with one another. Because, friends, we cannot have courageous conversations alone. You kind of can. You can put the groundwork maybe in your head, but you need other people. The cowardly lion, going back to our call to worship, the cowardly lion had Dorothy and a scarecrow and a tin man and Toto. Right? That's a pretty motley crew, but that was their peep. That was that was the peeps. That was who was there. And we have one another. We have one another. We have our small groups. We have our commitment to becoming love's people in this world, to living lives that are led by love, that are led by hospitality, that are led by the wisdom of the heart. And that is enough. Heart and hospitality. That is enough for courageous conversations. May it be so. And amen.